Well, I definitely echo uh, Marcus' sharing, all except for the duet about Brian McKnight and Mariah Carey. As long as I'm McKnight, I'm fine with that, I guess. Uh, but yeah, Marcus and I truly thank all of you for praying for us and sending us to Kazakhstan. Uh, for the first time in my life, I strongly sense the prayers of the saints at Cornerstone. It took us more than 27 hours for us to get there, but when we landed, we slept, we woke up, and we're ready to go. I mean, we had no jet lag once we arrived there. I mean, now I have jet lag, but, but when, I, when we were there, we were fine. Without hindrance, we were able to go all out in ministry because we were strengthened by God in answer to your prayers. And um, it is so comforting to be a part of a body that, will, that is so united in Christ and so devoted to prayer. Um, if I could just briefly share my highlights of the trip. First highlight would be just to just get to know Marcus. Um, we've known each other for, for maybe seven, eight months now, but didn't really, get, didn't, didn't really know him. But through the, through the trip, we really sensed that God had, has united our hearts and uh, really grew in love for one another and became steadfast friends through our time together. I knew right away that it was going to be a fun and interesting trip with Marcus. I got permission from him to share, with, share this, so share with all of you. On our on the trip there on, on the airport, my wife came out, Elizabeth, and Amy came out. It was Wednesday, 2 in the afternoon, so Daniel Pio, Phil No, and Peter O came out to see us off. And, you know, <clears throat> we're right, right before we enter the boarding area where we said our final farewells to everyone. And I turned to say bye to Serena and Elizabeth. And, you know, I've been married for seven years now, and we've been separated many times now. And, you know, so we said our goodbyes, hugs and kisses, you know, rated G, you know, goodbye, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> Marcus and Amy, they're newlyweds. They've been married like, what, 10, 11 months, and first time they were being apart, their farewell was uh, PG 13, and then some. <laughs> so. I have to go back to Serene because it was very intense. And Daniel Pio was like, Pastor Marcus. <laughs> so, and you right away, we're going to have an interesting time for nine days. But it was good. We were able to squeeze in about a year's worth of fellowship with Marcus and I in the last nine days. And really thank God for the fellowship we enjoyed. And that fellowship extended to Pastor Bajan. Um, such a simple life there. We, we ate, we slept, we fellowshiped, we prayed, we studied the Word of God, we evangelized. And that was about it. And our fellowship time together with him, which is so sweet, with all the believers there. Uh, secondly, I was reminded of my love for the church, the simplicity of the church. Small group of believers, 15, 20 believers, uh, no real programs or methods, no projector. Just very simple church, praise, prayer, word, and fellowship. And standing there, I love the church there just as much as I love Cornerstone. Reminded me that what I love about the church is not all these decorative things, but really just the basic core commitments that we have here at Cornerstone. And it was a joy to be with them and to worship them, with them. And the third um, highlight was this is simplicity of evangelism, to go out to the campus area and to proclaim the gospel, telling them, 
You guys are enslaved. You guys are slaves. Like slaves to what? The Bible says, all who sin is a slave to sin. And we have come halfway around the world to proclaim to you the gospel of freedom, that Christ has come to set you free from sin. And she was like, the Anura, the girl was like, I never heard of that before. Well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And to be able to, to preach the gospel was, was such a privilege, was such a joy. And then on Sunday morning, to have that man, Aiden, repent right in front of us. I have never seen that in my life. When Alihan said, this man wants to repent, I ran over to that area and I almost tripped because I was just so excited. Is this true? Is this really happening? And I was so thankful, Marcus and I, that we, God in His sovereignty, sent us to Kazakhstan last week. I mean, I would hate to be there like next week and say, man, you should have been here two, two weeks ago because the guy got saved. You missed it. I mean, I was just so privileged to get on my knees uh, with, with this man and to, and to pray for him and to see him come to Christ. Well, it was truly a joyous uh, ministry. We thank God for this opportunity and for the many opportunities uh, we have in the future to proclaim Christ here and around the world. I know the Czech team and the Ireland team are going to have a great time of ministry this summer, but I can personally attest that those six of you that are going to Kazakhstan, man, just you know, hold tight, get ready for a wild ride. It's going to be two weeks of just pure joy in fellowship and ministry with the saints. Uh, in Kazakhstan, um, we are sending 19 members from this church to missions this summer. Uh, God is build, making us a missions church, an evangelistic church, and for that we are grateful. By the end of this year, over 30 of our members will have gone overseas this year. I came back to hear that there are over 32 members signed up for the current evangelism training class. So we're just, I was encouraged I'm encouraged now, thankful for the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. And it is our prayer that He will continue to work powerfully in us. Make us a church that will be committed to His Word, devoted to prayer, and individually, radically committed to proclaim the Gospel throughout the world. Well, much time has passed. Let's get to our passage for... This morning on Easter Sunday, you know, for the past five Easter Sundays at Cornerstone, we have studied the topic of the resurrection of Christ from, from various vantage points. Well, this morning, I want to look at the three results of encountering the risen Lord. We want to look at the resurrection of Christ from the human vantage point, from the human perspective, from the Christian perspective. What happens to people who meet the risen Lord? In Philippians 3, 5 through 14, we find the three results. Um, just a brief background. Paul here gives his testimony, starting in verse 5. He talks about all the things that he was proud of, all the things that he uh, committed his life to all his spiritual achievements. He says in verse 5 that he was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law of the Old Testament. 
that he was of the nation of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he had Hebrew parents, both of them. He kept the language, he kept the customs. His friends were rejecting the language, learning Greek, learning other languages. He kept the Hebrew language. He kept the tradition, he kept it all. He was zealous for the word of God. As to the law, he says, he was blameless. He kept the law strictly. He was a member of the Pharisee. At the time of Paul's life, there were only 6,000 Pharisees, 6,000 men who devoted themselves to studying the Old Testament and obeying it in, in every aspect. And Paul was a member of the Pharisee. He was a Jew of all Jews, a man so radically committed to the Old Testament covenants that he persecuted those who varied in any way, including the Christians, a new, uh, uh, from his perspective, a blasphemous sect that arose within Judaism. They were leading people astray towards Christ. He not only disagreed with them doctrinally, he persecuted them. And yet, when Paul met Christ, the risen Savior on the road to Damascus, in that instant, he was a changed man. He was never the same again. His life was radically transformed. In 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul says, I am the worst of all sinners. And God showed me mercy so that Christ Jesus might display in me His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. Paul is saying, I am the Tupas, the model, the example I am the prototype of all Christians. So what happens to me will happen to all Christians. Therefore, not just for Paul, but these are the three radical results for every Christian. Every believer who has encountered the risen Lord has these three results. The first one is a new perspective. Second one is a new pursuit. Third is a new perseverance. All P's. Perspective, pursuit, perseverance. First of all, new perspective. Paul's view of his life was completely transformed after he met the Lord. As a sinner, he had treasured himself. His value was self-consuming and self-centered. His pride blinded him to the worthlessness and the vanity of these things. But once Christ saved him, his eyes were opened, his perspective was changed once and forever. He talks about this in verse 7. Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the qualifications of being righteous in verses, verse 5. These are things all under the category of confidence in the flesh. He boasted about these things. These were the bases of his righteousness. This was his spiritual resume. When God were to say, Hey Paul, why should I let you into heaven? He would have recounted these things. I was circumcised in the eighth day. 
I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As for law, I am blameless. I'm, a tri- I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a persecutor of the church. I'm zealous for your law. These were things that he had considered gain in terms of his salvation before God. But when he met the Lord instantly, they all became lost. They became a detriment to him. In that one instant, they became hindrances. All of his cherished treasures and his gain column, in that moment when he met the risen Lord, was moved to deficits. Not just, not only was his view of his religious life changed, his view of his whole life was transformed. Go down to verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse 8. I mean, verse 8 sums up the change that took place in Paul's perspective. Verse 7, he considered all the religious things as loss. In verse 8, Paul says, not just my religious things, but all things, all my good works, all the things I cherished, I consider them loss. When he compares them to the hypercon, the surpassing greatness to knowing Christ, when he compares these things to knowing the risen Savior, he says, they are lost. And then to drive home this point, second part of verse 8, he rightly labels his former treasures. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish is a very strong word. It's almost unbefitting a letter from a man like Paul. It is a very strong word. It is um, waste. Literal. It's the word dung. It is manure. It is excrement. Paul says his whole life is excrement compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. I think it was our second or third day when we were in Kazakhstan. We woke up one morning in Almaty and we got out and this truck came into our neighborhood and parked right in front of, our, right in front of the church and was backing up into our neighbor, neighbor's house. And I'd seen this truck years ago when I was like six years old in Korea. It looked exactly the same. I'm like, hey, Bajan, is that what I think it is? And he says, James, come in and close the door, right? Because <laughs> in, in areas of Almaty, uh, many homes don't have a running sewer system. They have a huge tank in the yard. So once every few months, a sewer truck comes, and they open the cap of the sewer tank, and they suck out scubalon, right? The excrement, the manure that's been collected over months into this tank, and they ship it away. Several hours later, right, we had to go out to, to go somewhere, and the whole neighborhood was filled with this stench. I mean, it was disgusting. 
It was gross. Well, that's what Paul is talking about. It wasn't just lost to him. It was rubbish. It was, it was excrement compared to knowing Christ. And that's what he carried with him throughout his life. It was, it was excrement because the burden was unbearable. God demanded righteousness according to his law. And Paul knew his hypocrisy because he tried to obey the law of God, but he couldn't do it. God's word said, do not murder. But Paul knew in his heart that he hated men. God's word said, do not lie. But Paul knew he made promises that he did not keep. God's word said, do not lust. Do not commit adultery. But Paul knew in his heart that he lusted after women. So outwardly, he was righteous. He was blameless. But Paul knew in his heart that these commands couldn't be kept. He couldn't obey the law of God. And it became to him a burden, an unbearable burden. It was to him, Scubalon. And so when Paul met Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the one who is the ransom for his sins, the one who came to redeem Paul and redeem men from the law of sin and death, the one who was victorious over sin and death, Paul said, this is great. I get to give you my tattered clothes of scubalon, tainted with excrement, and you give me the righteous clothes, the pure, holy robe of Christ? What kind of exchange is this? This is great. This is awesome. This is incomparable. He says, yes, Lord, take my filthy rags and give to me the clothes of Christ. This substitution is the core of the gospel. Second Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God on the cross. God judged Jesus as if he had committed personally, committed every sin committed by every person Whoever believed. And when a sinner embraces Christ, then God treats that person as if he lived the life of Christ. The perfect life of Christ. Paul says, is incomparable. Therefore, he had a new perspective. All the things that he boasted about, he considered now scubalon. And that's the reality of all Christians. Secondly, all Christians... The result in Paul's life, and therefore all Christians, is a new pursuit. A new pursuit. Look at verse 10. Paul says, that I may know him. That I may know him. The Bible talks frequently about Christians knowing Christ. Christians know Christ. Christians obey Christ. Christians know Christ. First John 10.14 I am the good shepherd. My, my sheep know me. John 17.3 this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. In his first epistle, John declared in 1 John 5.20, that God has given us knowledge of Him who is true. This is a true God and eternal life. Christians know God. But here, that I may know Him, 
The knowing is not a verb. It is a form of the noun gnosis, from the verb gnosko, which means what Paul is pursuing is not an intellectual knowledge of Christ. It is not a mental apprehension of the doctrine of Christ. What Paul is pursuing is a personal relationship with Christ. A personal, intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul knows very well, Matthew 7.21, that many will come to Christ in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, I know you. I've done these things for you. And Christ will say, Ergon, never. I never knew you. You knew about me. You saw that movie, The Passion of Jesus Christ, and you know a lot of facts about me. You know who my mom is, my dad is, where I was born, where I died, and all in between. But we never had a relationship. You were never my servant. I was never your master. Paul understands this. Paul, when he met the risen Christ, God gave him a new pursuit. Pursuit of an intimate knowledge of Christ. Specifically, verse 10, second part, he wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection. The power of Christ's resurrection. When Paul studied the law, he knew there was no power in this law. He knew there was no power in Judaism. That all false religion has no power to save and has no true power to sanctify a sinner. When he saw Christ, he saw the man they crucified raised again, sitting at the right hand of God in all his glory. He saw the power of Christ. The resurrection of Christ was the greatest display of his power. God says that same power is available to Paul and to all Christians. So for Paul, he wanted to know Christ, and specifically, first of all, he wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection, meaning he wanted to experience that power. He wanted to see him grow over sin. He knew he he tried it before with the law, he couldn't do it. He wanted to experience the power of the resurrection in growing in humility. Because in the law, he just grew proud. But through Christ's resurrection, he wanted to see that at work in his life. He wanted to see the workings of God's power to grow him in holiness, in piety, in character, and godliness. He did not want just the doctrinal understanding of the resurrection of Christ. He wanted to experience it firsthand. He desired to know personally the life-changing power of the gospel. To experience it fully. Next, verse 10, part C. Secondly, that he may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The Apostle Paul speaks here of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He has in mind here, he wants to know Christ in his sufferings. Personally know Christ. Paul, therefore, treasured suffering for Christ. Not because he enjoyed pain. Not because he enjoyed trial, because he enjoyed suffering. He didn't enjoy them for its own sake, 
but he enjoyed the result that suffering granted him a more intimate fellowship with Christ. Isn't that the truth? If you're a believer, you enjoy suffering for Christ. You enjoy trials for the cause of Christ. You know, people might say, man, Marcus, you had a week off from school and you went to Kazakhstan and slept on the floor? And you spent a week preaching the gospel where people reject you, mock you, and, and turn you away? And, and you have to go through all that hardship of travel and eating foreign foods and, and all the difficulties that comes along with it? And we would say, no. I mean, Marcus and I said, that was a, that was a great week. It was just sweet. It was pure joy. Because the difficulties of life for a true believer draws us nearer to Christ. Therefore, in a real paradoxical way, Christians, we're not afraid of suffering. Like what Art was sharing in his testimony, we look back at our our times of difficulty and we see the faithfulness of God all the more. Therefore, we cherish sufferings with Christ because through that we grow in our knowledge of Him and then finally verse 11 part eternal perspective he pursued Christ because through pursuing Christ he might know the glory of Christ in his resurrection with him well let's go down let's go to the third one third result first is new perspective Second is new pursuit. Third is new perseverance. New perseverance. Verse 12. Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made it, made me his own. You know, if you're a reader of Paul's epistles, you would agree that Very likely, Paul was a sports fan. Paul enjoyed athletics. He talks about boxing in 1 Corinthians 9. Ephesians 6.12, he talks about wrestling. He talks about many sports. He talks about crowns and awards, winning the contest throughout the epistles. But for Paul, his favorite athletic metaphor is that of a foot race. Acts 20:24. 20, he declared to the elders of Ephesus, I do not consider my life of any worth, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to t- testify to the gospel, the grace of God. He talks about finishing this race. In 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about a race. All runners run, but only one receives a prize. At the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says, I have finished the race. It is that metaphor of the Christian life as a race that is expressed in verse 12. Paul says, I am not perfect. Yes, I've met the risen Lord. Yes, I'm pursuing Christ. But this idea of spiritual perfectionism is foreign to the scriptures, the gospel. I am far from perfect. I have a long way to go. This race is miles to go. And then he says, I press 
on. He presses on. He presses on perseveringly towards the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He tells us by this that the Christian life is a lifelong pursuit of Christ-likeness. Christ saved Paul so that Paul might be like Christ. What is Paul's response? He responds by pressing all, pressing on towards being Christ-like. He is not riding an escalator. He is not at an airport gate riding a people mover. He's a Christian, therefore, he lets go and he lets God. He just goes to the finish line. That idea is foreign to Christianity. The idea is one of pressing on with perseverance. I read this this week. At the foot of one of the Swiss Alps is a marker honoring a man who fell to his death while he was climbing that particular mountain. The marker gives his name and this brief quote, He died climbing. End quote. I like that. That should be the motto of every Christian. That when we go, when we come to the end of our lives, we go while we are climbing towards Christ, while we are pursuing Christ. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Christ is not just doctrine, it's not just theology. It is powerful. It is, it is a powerful truth that has specific and radical results in every Christian's life. Three results. New perspective, new pursuit, new perseverance. Let me ask you some questions. Do you have a new perspective concerning your life? Do you have a new perspective of Christ as your highest treasure? Before you encounter the risen Lord, he was a pathetic man dying as a victim on a cross many years ago. As a Christian now, do you have a different perspective of him? Do you cherish Christ? Do you value Christ? You can know if you value Christ. First of all, do you take risks for Christ? Do you take personal risk for Christ? Do you risk relationships for Christ? Do you push the envelope because you adore and you cherish the risen Lord? Jesus Christ. And if you come upon a raging water, a flooded water, I think all of us would be afraid to jump in. But for the fathers there that are in this room, if you saw your son or daughter, would you hesitate for a moment to jump in to rescue your child? You wouldn't. Your love for your daughter, your love for your child, would over, overcome any fear, any doubt, any concern, and you would jump with both feet and dive into the water to rescue your child. Why? Because your child is precious to you. Because you love your child. Well, what about Christ? If He is precious, then we would 
set aside worries about life, our shallow concerns for Christ and for His cause? You know, do you cherish Christ? Are you suffering for the risen Christ? That tells us whether we cherish Christ or not. Are you suffering for Christ? Many people want Paul's doctrine, but few want Paul's life. We want to sit back in our comfort chairs and study Paul's life. He refused to get up out of our seats and live the life which incurs suffering. Are you losing your desire? Are you losing taste for this world and growing in desire for the risen Lord? Is your desire growing for the Lord because you saw, you once saw a man dying on the cross, now you see a risen Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Secondly, are you pursuing the experiential knowledge of Christ? And I'm talking beyond, beyond, I mean, if you're not listening to sermons, if you're not, you know, if you're not participating in flock, if you're not taking notes in Bible study and, you know, reading books, I mean, that's just basic. That's even before all of this. What Paul is talking about is beyond doctrine, beyond knowing scripture, beyond reciting memory verses. What Paul is pursuing here is apprehending the doctrine of Christ's resurrection, that it is such a reality that it changes the way he lives his life today. That's how Christians live. That the resurrection is such a certainty that they live a pure, holy, separate life here on earth. Is that your pursuit? Are you pursuing just a mental, intellectual knowledge of Christianity? Or do you have that new pursuit like Paul to live the doctrine out, to make Christ's resurrection a daily part of your life? And finally, are you persevering in your pursuit of experiencing the risen Christ? Are you pressing on? Are you pressing on? And I'll close with this. I was looking for an appropriate illustration came upon the words of John Paul Jones. He is one of the most recognizable names of a naval, naval officer of the Revolutionary War. Uh, historians say that Mr. Jones was physically unimpressive, that Thomas Jefferson called him a small man. He was shorter than five foot five. But all the soldiers who fought with him, they say of Jones that he's a big man. His heart is huge, courageous man. On September 23rd, 1779, John Paul Jones fought one of the bloodiest engagements in naval history. Jones was struggled against the Royal Navy frigate Serapis. The Serapis was a far larger ship than the one Jones was commanding. The British demanded surrender, saying, your ship is sinking, your ship is on fire, save yourself, save your officers and your men, surrender. And we all know this, right? John Paul Jones said, I have not yet begun to fight. More than three hours later, the British Navy surrendered. 
John Paul Jones took command. That's the mindset. That's the new pursuit of a Christian where he says, I have not yet begun to pursue Christ. Are you plateauing in your pursuit of Christ? Are you coasting? Are you taking it easy? Are you just enjoying the ride with Cornerstone? You know, as a college student, you're saying, well, I've pursued enough. I'm going to take it easy from this point out. Maybe as a single young adult, or maybe you're saying, well, I'm dating now. I'm engaged. It's time for me to kind of soak it in and enjoy my life. Or maybe you're newly married. Maybe you're married with several children, and you say, well, I want to be comfortable now. I've done enough ministry. I've done enough pursuing. Time for me to coast. No. True believers, true Christians who have encountered the risen Lord say, I press on. I have not yet really begun to follow Christ. They say, until now, my life has been prologue. My Christian life begins starting today. Until now, I've been coasting. I'm going to really begin to to study scripture, really begin to minister, really begin to pour myself for the cause of the gospel. You know, I think in God's sovereignty, God caused us to go to Kazakhstan week before Easter and to bring the report to you of people being saved throughout the world as they encounter the risen Lord. What will you do? Are you going to sit on the sidelines and watch all this happen? Or will you be like Apostle Paul, follow his footsteps and pursue Christ, pressing on with a new perspective? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we know that the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God, not through the words of men, not through um, arguments of this world, not through philosophies, but the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God. We pray that as the Word of God was declared, that you would save the lost and you would sanctify the saints there are so many here, so many of us, myself included, who are so complacent, who are like Martha, worried about many things. Or we're concerned about so many earthly pursuits, earthly concerns. Lord, jolt us awake, knowing that you are a living Christ, that God, you are a living God, that you are here with us now, that you see all things, you know all things that you have given us the power of Christ's resurrection to the Holy Spirit, Lord, you would um, grant us the grace to unbuckle our hindrances so that we might have a new perspective of our lives, have a new pursuit of Christ, and that we would pursue Christ with perseverance. We thank you, God, for this past week, for Marcus and I and all the believers being united in prayer. Um, Lord, may you continue that work in our, in our church until your return. In the Lord's name we pray. Amen.